Exactly, and uh, thanks a lot, Cassandra. And I think first of all, we should thank all the organizers for, uh, I mean, for handling people for 10 weeks, which is much more difficult than handling, I think, science. So I think we should congratulate Cassandra, Greg, and Rick, and all those people who actually. Who did this in the first place? So. Um, yeah, mostly uh, I'm going to be talking about evolutionary game theory and in particular multiplayer evolutionary game theory. But before I go to it, I mean, let me just tell you what, what my motivation was to think about such a project. And the idea, of course, comes again as from many ideas from Hamilton or Maynard Smith and all those people from at that time. When he made this nice statement that human life is a many-person game and not just a disjoint collection of two-person games. I mean, game theory has been used a lot. A ma majority uh, of the focus has been on two-player games with two strategies. But uh, what he means by the statement is that, OK, you can't just put all those together one after the other and say that, OK, now we, we can put all these together and try to understand this one particular phenomenon. It's, it's not that kind of uh, additive thing. So we need to study this uh, specially. And OK, we don't find this thing not just in humans, or like when in prehistoric times, well, or even now, group hunts or meeting together for world summits, for climate change conferences, but also in animal kingdom where you see group hunting or cooperating together for whatever you want to call that, to be hanging out together for a long time and doing stuff. But the thing is that most of the theory, that's what we know, has been on these two-player games with two strategies. And that's, that's we, we have a lot of information about this. Um, about this kind of um, about the analysis which goes in, into these these kind of games, and this analysis can also be extended to any number of strategies. I'll come to what player strategies and everything is just to set the stage right now. I'm saying that what we know is about two-player games, two strategies. We can extend it to any number of strategies as well. The analysis and um, what we know about multiplayer games is comes mostly from examples, from one particular example, in fact, uh, which is the public goods game, which has been used like across fields, from economics to biology to social science, whatever you can think of. But this concept of public goods games, that's been used like as, as a starting point. But we have to understand that that's not a general multiplayer game. It's, it's a one particular example, a special case of what multiplayer games could be. So. Uh, what our question was, can we, can we say something general about this? Just as we have a lot of theory about this two-player games with two strategies, can we have a general theory about any D-player games with N strategies or something like that? So that, that, that was kind of the question here. So going back to the roots now, as I promised, like let's, I'll tell where, what games and strategy and everything. So game theory, as, as we know of, it, uh, it, has, it was there since a long time, actually, but it was formally written down by Oscar Morgenstein and John von Neumann in their book uh, in 1944. And primarily, they were thinking about humans. I mean, it, that was the focus. It was not like some abstract thing. They were thinking about uh, how to apply it in economics as a rational, uh, when interacting individuals are acting rationally or so. We know that they don't always act rationally and things like that. but. That's, that's, they, they had a particular application in mind when they came up with this, and that was humans. 
but then it got turned around people wanted to use it for evolutionary games and how how do we do that now let me start with a very simple example so of course i also have a model organism its genome is well sequenced and everything so those, those dots you can think of whatever your favorite organism is in there. And so one is this ni nice idea of constant selection, which was like, okay, you have an organism in an environment. It has a certain fitness at a certain time, say it's one. Then by any process, for example, mutation, there comes one more individual of uh, certain, a little bit different fitness, a bit higher. And if the selection is constant over time, it will just go to fixation. Okay, fine. But this is just one scenario. What can also happen is you have frequency dependence. So you start off with, again, a population of these blue guys, then a red guy comes with slightly higher fitness. But over time, as selection acts, its frequency increases. But now the fitness change because it's frequency dependent. So now the blue guys have an advantage, and then the system will go back and forth if it's infinitely large. So this is actually one particular example of negative frequency dependence. You can have positive and things like that. But what evolutionary game theory, or how we can think about that, is you just take these numbers, you put them in the matrix. And that's, that's what you get. So if I, I am an individual who can choose between wild type and mutant, and I am going to meet uh, someone else who can be a wild type and a mutant, then that's my fitness. So in the population which is predominantly made of wild types, I have 1.0. But if it is predominantly made of mutants, then I have 0.9. So it changes. And this is one simple way of how, how we can put ideas from biology into evolutionary games to make it evolutionary game theory, which is what Maynard Smith famously put, that evolutionary game theory is a way of thinking about evolution at the phenotypic level. So you're looking at these traits, which are going to fix or not, and things like that, when the fitness of a particular phenotype depends on their frequencies. So constant fitness is, of course, it's a special case of this. So if the numbers are the same, then, yeah, then the frequencies don't matter. So this this notation which was shown earlier this this is called as the payoff matrix where for a, this is for a two player game so you think of yourself as here and your co-player as the one the column player so you can do two things you can play a or b your co-player can do a play a or b and whatever you get in uh, according to the in those particular columns and rows is that's that's what that's what, that's your payoff so if a plays with a it gets a1 if it plays with b it gets a0 and so on and uh, one of the very popular and one of the very strong concepts which came out of game theory was this idea of evolutionarily stable strategies, or an ESS. And what it simply means is that, okay, if I have a population fully of these blue guys, and if I get a very small invasion, a very small number of mutants of, of these red guys, and if blue guys can still persist, they can push them back, then blue, blue guys are an, are an ESS. And that's an ESS. Mathematically, you can write it down. What what inequalities should the payoff matrix fulfill such that this thing happens? But that's that's simply the idea of what an ESS is. Well, yeah, as I said, I mean it came from economics, so you have to put it in context of what does it mean by this other famous thing which we always hear of Nash. So you have this idea of a strict Nash equilibria, where basically what it means. So you can think of these as two hurdles. So now if these blue guys want, red guys want to take over your population. What do you do? Okay, I have A1 greater than B1, so if they, I don't even let them invade in the first place, and then A0 greater than B0. If you have this, then they can't even fix in the population. So this allows them to come into the population, the first one, but the second one can let them fix in the population if, if it doesn't satisfy this. So as long as I have this, I'm safe. And that's called as the strict Nash. 
Then we have the concept of an ESS, where it's 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 a bit uh, relaxed. It says that okay, I will not let them invade them. That was the first idea. That even if a little bit come, they go away because they can't sustain because B1 is smaller. But uh, if somehow they make it beyond the point, this actually doesn't matter then. What, what I want is they should not invade, and that's an ESS. But then, then there is a simpler version of it, which is called as a weak ESS, which is simply, okay, maybe they come into the population, that's fine, because they are getting the same thing as I am getting, so it's okay, they come in, but they will never fix in the population. So that's, that's a weak ESS, saying that, okay, you can sustain two strategies at the same time in the population. And then you have this big concept of a Nash equilibrium, which just says that, okay, what I am getting right now is going to be the same thing that I'm getting, I will be getting if I change my strategy. If I move from here to here, there is not going to be much difference, so I don't care. I, I'm, there is no point in switching. And that's the idea of a simple Nash. And so you can see the structuring of what, how to classify an equilibria of a certain strategy, going from a strictly economic-based theory to uh, um, to biological, uh, biological where it makes sense that okay you can accept a little bit of coexistence. So what people like to say is that ESS is a bit more forgiving than strict Nash. And when people talk about Nash they usually are thinking about strict Nash in economics but we are not going to be worried about that. But what we are going to be worried about is the statement which Morgenstein and von Neumann made. They said that we repeat most emphatically that our theory is thoroughly static and a di dynamic theory would be uh, unquestionably be more complete and therefore preferable. What do they mean by that? The idea is that, okay, you can say, you look at a strategy, say, yeah, yeah, it's an ESS, it's a Nash, or blah, blah, whatever, whatever. How, how do you reach that strategy in the first place? Can a population even reach a state where everyone is blue? I mean, and then you can ask questions about, oh, will it be stable or things like that? So you need to put these dynamics into the process. And to study the dynamics, there was another um, very popular and powerful mechanism, which was the replicator dynamics, which just looks for change in number of A players, for example, in the simplest case. Change in number of A players, that's what we will focus on. So how do I know what's going to be the change in the number of A players? So I assume that they are at some frequency, x, and then we calculate the average payoff of A players. And what does it mean by this? So if the frequency of these blue guys is x, and then this you just assume a very large and infinitely large population, and so this one is just 1 minus x. So what this guy is getting is just x times a1 and 1 minus x times a0, and that's it. That's just the average payoff. And you can also write the same thing for the b strategies, and in this case you assume that the fitness is the same as this payoff. This average fitness is the same as the average payoff that you're getting. Yeah. Um, when Morgan Swan said that uh, their theory was strictly static, you could have a dynamic one. This is one example of the this is one example. I mean, you you can no, they were not saying of this actually at that time. This came on much later. Okay, but they were, but the types of parameters that they imagined should be dynamic could right. include the number of players, for example. Right, okay. right. That that could that could. Okay. I mean, and they had they had different. I mean, replicator dynamics is just one. There are other kinds of dynamics. Best response dynamics, dynamic. Best. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. You are th those are having uh, mutations in right. basically, but for for the dynamics, I mean, you can have best like how do players respond to what they are getting over here, and that can change a lot. Okay. So, okay. Uh, I mean, there there are some other dynamics which they did study, but the but at that time that was not the mainstay because th this concept of Nash was so predominant that. Uh, 
solutions to the problem that would result in total dominance of right. one Right, exactly. But you, you can't say how will that actually happen. Correct. Will that even happen in the population? Okay. But they say that if, if it happens, that's cool. That's the nice thing. That's what you want. Um, so if, if you write this, this uh, time derivative of, of this x over here, then you just see that it's a uh, differential equation which just has three uh, known solutions. And that's because it, the, it, this differential equation lives on this one-dimensional simplex. And that, that's because your whole population can either be red or the whole population can be blue or something in between. And that's, that's all that you can have in, in this kind of a system. So the solutions for this one is when either you have x is 0, that's everyone is red, or x is 1 when everyone is blue, or somewhere in between that will be given when fa is equal to fp. And you can have that in different cases, like either fa is always greater, or the other thing is fa is always smaller, then, you have the, uh, then it goes below. Then, or you have a stable equilibrium where you, uh, fa is actually greater in initially, but after certain frequency, it's smaller, or the other way around over there, where you have an unstable equilibrium, or throughout you have Fa is the same as Fb, and this is the neutral case. So these are definitely called some things, and that's the idea of a dominance, coexistence games, bistability, and neutrality. And just by looking at these Fas and Fbs, which are the fitnesses, which as you know, as I said, come from the payoffs, just by looking at this, you can tell what kind of a game it is. So here it's never. Here the only solutions are when it's zero and one, right? The frequency of x. So it's this. <coughs> and throughout everywhere in between FA is greater than FP. So that's why it's on top. And the other case would be when it's down, that when FP is greater. In this case, there is certain frequency where FA is equal to FP. Because I, I haven't written it nicely because this is much more cleaner, but of course not. FA and FP are, FP are functions of x. Functions of x. That's the right? part. That's the thing. Oh, okay. So that's that's what I showed before. Because FA is the payoff, and payoff is this average payoff. A1 times x, B1, B0, A0 times. Um, and so these these are the usual games for two-player games which are studied a long, for a long time. But the nice thing is there is also this cool relation to population genetics in this because you can convert just these, these same games and if you think of, uh, of course, under some assumptions, you can think of them as directional selection, over-dominance, under-dominance, or neutrality. And you have these three different strategies. There is... But, but okay, this, this is fine, this is all nice and beautiful, you have this nice theory and then you can start applying it to different things. But this is all for infinitely large populations. And <coughs> mathematical analysis for finite popula populations would definitely be more realistic. But the problem is it's also a bit more harder. And uh, of course, as the process of science goes, the applications were developed and applications then they forced the theory to think back and uh, there was this one cool paper which of course they made it pretty sexy because it I applied it to the problem of cooperation so everyone was like oh yeah cool now we should do finite populations and uh, but the thing is okay that's an application but the thing that it gave back to the theory was this impetus into studying finite populations 
which which has grown like crazy in the past decade. Um, so there are many processes which you can study for if you want to have a stochastic description of this kind of a system. Uh, you can do the traditional right fisher process, the Moran process. Uh, I'll stick to the Moran process over here and just to give you an idea what, what the Moran process is. You have your population at a certain time point. You have certain number of blue guys, certain number of red guys. Then you throw a dice. And then you check if it is below t plus or t minus. t plus and t minus are the transition probabilities of the system. So if it is less than, say, t plus, then you increase the number of blue guys. Or if it's t minus, then you in, uh, decrease the number of blue guys. But then you add a, uh, then you randomly kill an individual here, or you add uh, randomly kill an individual here in both cases, just so that the population size stays the same. And of course, with one minus this, nothing happens. So that's and this all thing happens in one time step. So you have a birth event and a death event. And that's just a simple Moran process. Or to think of it as, as in a uh, Markovian process, you can see, see that, okay, we had the simplex in the beginning where your population could be all red or all blue. But now what we have is a stochastic description. So I have a population size of n, and I can have all of them as blue individuals or none of them as blue individuals. So these numbers below are just the number of blue guys. And then the question of interest would be, okay, if I do have a single blue guy over here, What's the probability that it will take over the population? That's, that's the fixation probability of a blue guy. And under neutrality, where this jumping between states is the same, the probability to increase is the same as the probability to decrease, then it's just a neutral process. So if it's a single guy, the fixation probability is just 1 over n. And that's, that's under neutrality. And, but now what we, what we can have is a new payoff to fitness mapping. So earlier we had this payoff is the same thing as fitness. But now we can have, I mean, this is just one way you can have other things. But here, it's just a linear mapping where you introduce this w over here, where it's, it's a concave function such that you can tune the effect of the game on the fitness. So you can just move this w between 0 and 1. And then you see that I, whenever it is 0, yeah, the fitness of both the types, fa, fp, would be just 1. But as soon as you increase it, the game starts mattering. And whenever it's one, it's completely determined by the game, and we go back to the previous condition. So we have this nice parameter which tunes the impact of the game on the fitness. And for small values of omega, then I, I won't go into details of how and everything. You can just write down a nice condition that when is this fixation probability greater than neutral? Because that's, that's the thing of interest for us. We just want to see when can we avoid this neutrality. And that would mean that the strategy is being favored. And there is a very simple condition which, uh, which you can write down, which tell, tells you when, when is this greater than neutrality. The cool thing is that it comes directly from, from the payoff entries. So you just look at the payoff entries, and you can already tell in a finite population what, if, if the uh, strategy has a greater uh, probability to fix it than neutral. So that, that was a cool finding at that time. And, uh, as soon as you're moving, because if you think about the process, okay, it has an advantage, it's moving over here slowly, it'll go, but it'll reach a point when there is a single B individual. So a single red individual. And you can ask the same question again. What's the probability of this guy actually making it back? So what's of interest is the comparison of these fixation probabilities. So we don't just need that 
this uh, fixation probability of A is greater than neutral, but also ask the question if it's greater than that of B. And actually this thing was done like way before by Harsanyi and Zelton and not just for this but for many other things. They got the Nobel Prize and things but I mean you see it's nice and it's correct because it's so beautiful. It's just a sum of your payoffs what you're getting and if A1 plus A0 is greater than B1 plus B0 then the fixation probability of infinite populations is also greater than uh, of A is greater than that of B. So let's, let's, ju let's just recapitulate what are the ideas of interest for us over here. So in a general 2 by 2 game, right now as, as you see I'm not assuming anything on these payoff entries. It's, it's a very general process. So for, for a general 2 by 2 games for infinitely large populations, we know that the dynamics takes place on a one dimensional simplex and that's just because there are two strategies, blue and red, that's all you can get. And the outcomes which are uh, there, I mean there are only these four possible outcomes. You can have a single internal equilibrium or none. And that, th that's what you have for infinitely large populations. For finite populations, we have two, these two conditions. The fixation probability is greater than neutrality if this inequality is fulfilled. And the fixation probability of A is greater than that of B or any strategy A is greater than like that of B if the, the second inequality is fulfilled. And as promised now, I'll try to see what happens if we move up in this in this space if we increase the number of players, and that's that's what we are interested in. So let's let's start with a simple case. Let's just add one more player to the thingy. And uh, sorry, before you, you yeah. add the, the the other player. Yeah. <clears throat> when you look at the finite populations, mm -hmm. um, there's no regime where you expect by stability. Know that the outcome will depend on the initial conditions. Yes, you do. You do. So, so can you can you show yeah. me a bit? So when you go two slides back. So, you know the, the one where you were comparing the the infinite with the finite. Okay. Yeah. This one here. Right. right. So so you you. Um, uh, let me see if I understand. So so you have. Have the possibility where even when it's neutral, you can you will reach fixation of, of right uh, in finite populations. Yes, and then and then you have this other one where so if you ERP right, but the I, thing is, I, I think that's yeah that's a very cool point which you're making. So the thing is over here in in this kind of a case, you can still calculate the fixation probability of reaching here because it's a finite thing. By noise, you can jump over here. On this side, and then you calculate the probability. In the infinite or in the finite? In the finite population, mm -hmm. because uh, this so thing is in, in that regime, regime number three, the bistable regime. Yeah. Uh, you knew from infinite populations that that depends on on the on the payoff matrix, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. there's a certain regime of the payoff. It is actually actually the thing is, especially for this thing, you can rewrite this inequality in a different. That's also famously known as the one-third rule. And what it says that if the frequency of, or better than the frequency, if this point, the unstable point, is less than one third, then infinite probability is greater than neutral. So you can rewrite this thing in such a way that x, this, that that that, that inequality tells you that this point, if it is less than one third of this over here in infinitely large populations just by looking at the game and calculating it over here 
then you can already tell tell in finite populations it will be greater than uh, uh, neutral. But for for which uh, strategy, the blue one or for the, the blue one? For the red, for the blue one, for the red one, this point has to be over here, close, close to one third from the other. Okay. But now, what would happen in that situation if you started with a high frequency of red ones to begin with? Does that does it matter what? what then, then you then the fixation probability of blues guy. I mean, that's already greater than neutral, right? For blue ones anyway. Yeah. Because if you start with Oh, you are saying a large number of red individuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what I'm saying. If you start with a large number, if you think of a single blue individual, that's it. A single blue individual starting over here. You mean a single among a hundred, for yeah. example? Okay. Yeah. Starting over here. But if from the infinitely large population limit, you know that the position of this point is less than, say, one third. So it's at 33.33 .33 mm -hmm. somewhere. Then let's, if it is less than that, then you can say that the fixation probability is greater than neutral. Fixation probability of which? Of one? the blue guy. Of the blue guy. Of the single blue guy. It's still greater than neutral. It's still no, greater so than neutral. Okay, so you're yeah. always comparing with the neutral case. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that kind of tells you if selection is acting or not. Mm -hmm. That's why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can you can still tell that. Mm -hmm. But the fixation of, of the red one would still be greater than neutral. Yes, it will be. But the thing is, you can still have that. That's the thing. You can still have that. So yeah. Under which because then, because then you then you are looking if uh, then you are asking for the second condition, and this will not be fulfilled. But that doesn't tell you anything about this. Okay. Well, I'm I'm just trying to figure out the the bi-stability is still there. Yes, right? it is there. Okay. It is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It is there. It just matters where this equilibrium is. Okay. So everything else that's a feature of infinite populations is still there. Yeah. What you add when you have is just the stochasticity due to the finiteness of the population. Is that you can compare with the neutral case? Right. Okay. Right. So. So let, let's let's add one more player to this whole setup now. And uh, one simple way of doing is like say that, okay, I am again over here. I am either playing red or blue, but now I play against two more individuals to, to get taken together three. So I can play against like two blue guys, two red guys, or a red and a blue, a blue and red. And in this case, if you assume that it's it's the same playing against red, blue, or blue, red, you can write it down and still in this table format where you just weight these payoffs then by two or something. But if you say that they are not equal, that it's it's something different, it makes makes a difference if I play with a blue and red and red or blue, then, then you can still write it, write the whole payoff entries down in a tensor and uh, you, you are still fine. The analysis doesn't matter, depend on what kind of... Uh, there are no cooperations allowed. Sorry? Cooperative behavior is not allowed. So A2 and A, A1, you know, the two people cannot agree to beat the other guy, because that could... We're assuming everybody plays separately. Right. And plays without any cooperative behavior. Oh, yeah. Um, you mean you mean if these two guys can then come together or things like yeah. that? No, no. The idea is just same thing as before. I mean, because otherwise it would be that those AAs may come together or something. Because but those are the theories that economists try to try to analyze, right? That yeah, that's, that's the cooperative game theory. And uh, but we are we are not assuming anything, cooperative or non-cooperative, nothing. 
So the, everybody plays simultaneously and nobody cooperates right. with anybody. Right. This is, uh, the, the, it's not, not about cooperate or not cooperate. We, we are just neutral in that aspect right now. Because that would make, that would, that would say that you are making some assumptions on these payoff entries. And we don't want to do that. Um, so, so it doesn't matter which, which structure you choose for, for your, how to have your payoffs, the analysis still holds. The, even if you add one more player, the thing is your simplex is still one dimensional. You still have just two strategies. So this is fine, you are still in one dimension. But what does change is you get, uh, you, uh, you can now have two equilibria in the interior of the simplex. So earlier you had just one and now you have two and that's because of the nonlinearity which comes out by having three players. So now the solutions are two. You can get two internal solutions. And as soon as we know this, we can immediately actually make, start making statements about any D-player games. That for any D-player game, when this is, uh, this should be an equal sign. It's equal here. Okay. Um, you can still write down, uh, write down the table or a payoff tensor, what, what, however you want. And uh, the dynamic still takes place on a one-dimensional simplex. But the number of points in the interior, the maximum number of points which you can have now is d minus 1. Because you have a, you have a system of, uh, which is of the order d then over there. And again, we try to do the same thing. This is the analysis for infinitely large populations. And that's what we knew for two-player games for finite populations. So can we do the same thing for finite populations for these high-dimensional stuff? And then yeah, yeah, then you just do some stuff. And in the end, you get, um, again, two inequalities. And of course, in hindsight, they look very simple and trivial, but they should. <laughs> because if you just put d equal to 2, you recover those two, of course. And uh, so we can tell even for multiplayer games if the fixation probability of a strategy is greater than neutral or if that is greater than the other strategy just by looking at these two inequalities. And so what you need is have a look at your payoff matrix and you can already tell what's happening in finite populations. And the, this, is, this is where it comes to the point that this, the one-third rule which I said like for, uh, it's, this, this has also been uh, shown that it works for all the processes. So the, uh, the, the inequality which we got, it's valid for all the processes in the Kingman's coalescence. So all these Wright-Fisher processes, um, Moran process, the, this uh, branching process, I mean, all, all these processes in which you can track the individual back in time, you can uh, use this rule over there. So is there an intuitive sense of where the one-third comes from? Yeah, there have been many papers trying to find that. The idea is like, if it's less than one third, they have some argument like, then you play more often, like two thirds of the time you're playing with the same guy, with, with your same strategy rather than the other guy. And that gives you this advantage that pushes you for, further. So there, there is this intuitive argument for that, but it's not very clear yet. So because there are only two games, right? So if there were there were more than two games, two games, because there were only two strategies. Two stra um, if there were more than two strategies. The one. I'll I'll, I'll come to that. I'll come to that. One fourth yeah. or one fifth or something. Uh, yeah, they have they have tried to generalize that further actually. Yeah. And uh, one more cool thing about the question which Joe asked earlier. I mean, there are these. Um, uh, 
weird games, for example, where you have uh, the stable coexistence, where everything goes inside, or from both the sides you will go inside. And in that, in that sense, what what happens when you are looking at fixation probabilities? Because okay, you have a fixation probability of fixing somewhere, but everywhere in between, the the system is trying to push you in the middle. So does it make sense to think about fixation probability in that sense? Because even if your fixation probability would be greater than neutral, you would never reach there because the time required would be like infinite. So another thing which is of interest to is, is to look at these fixation times. And particularly we look at conditional fixation times. And what I mean by conditional is that, okay, if I start with a single view, given that it does reach fixation, what's the time required? So and that's that's the condition. And what when then we you can actually look up this process because it's a standard Markov chain. This has been studied for I don't know century or so at least, and then it's a standard formula which calculates uh, what's the time required. This absorption process uh, between two boundaries, absorbing boundaries, and mean exit times and things like that. But what what we did find a bit curious was that if you do have a certain game, and it's, it it was a very quirky example. Like if you have a certain game that where you always have an advantage of these blue guys always have an advantage towards going to fixation. It's it's a slow, it's a, it's a decreasing advantage, but it's always there. So as it reaches fixation, the advantage decreases a bit. But it's always there. And in such a case, what what would you expect for the fixation time? It should be faster, right? I mean, you should go to fixation because selection is pushing you there and things like that. But when, when we did look at it, it was like, for, so for a, for a two-player game, and if you normalize this fixation uh, time by, it's, this is just the neutral fixation time, which would be there. Um, the fixation time actually increases for small selection intensities. So if the selection is a is weak selection, the time required to fix it for an advantageous mutant is actually smaller than that of a neutral one. And that, that was a very curious thing, and first we didn't understand why, but if you look at what goes into calculating this uh, conditional fixation time, it, then it starts making sense because the, it is the interplay between the fixation probability and these transition probabilities. The transition probabilities are going down and the fixation, although the fixation probability is increasing. And the reason for that actually is because as you are moving over here, when you are very close to actually getting fixed, you almost get, new, you get almost neutrality over here. And because you get neutrality, the system hangs around. It doesn't know what to do. It's just sticking there. And then it waits for chance. If it goes by chance over here, then it's again pushed, but then it again become, becomes neutral. So the system spends a lot of time very close to, in the interior. And that's why actually the time required is larger. So you don't get it. Yeah. Why it's larger than, then it's like the neutral case, so you, no, but even larger than the neutral. Yeah, it's, it's larger than neutral because it's not always neutral. It gets forced there, and by fluctuations, it can move back. So if it, it was just neutral, it would be jumping all the time and then go to fixation. But here, because there is this weird play between transition probabilities and because you see that the transition probabilities also decrease. When, and, that's, and that's because you are asking for the process when it does reach fixation. So it's, so it's because of this conditional thing on top. So when you get to the end, you're more likely to go backwards than you are to yeah, go forwards. Right. But, but, as, but that's very close to the end. Because as soon as you move back, you're again forced. And this keeps on happening more than neutral. That's, that's why you spend more. And then the thing is, you can also extend this analysis for uh, multiplayer games. And 
well, what, what you, because this becomes very hard to look at, you look at the first order expansion, you just see if it is positive or not. And that, uh, the way this first order expansion looks is not that nice for multiplayer games, but you can still calculate it and it doesn't matter. The thing is that you can tell that it's positive and it keeps on actually increasing as, the, as you increase the number of players. So these are the numbers, two, four, eight, and for the same game it keeps on increasing. So this was just a sh short detour to fixation times. Uh, so now, coming back to your question, I mean, we did this increase the number of players, but we can also increase the number of strategies. And again, to start with the simplest case, let's go back to two player games and increase the number of strategies. And we, we, all, know, we all know about multiple strategies, like since a long time. I mean, you, you have play, played rock, paper, scissors. Smart people have played like even more stuff, which is, I don't know, quite complicated. And even smarter people like the ones in this room might might play something like this, which is, I don't get it. But yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's the first thing that I looked for. And that's actually not even there in the previous one as well. This is not the real stuff, right? <laughs> this is what they use in competitions. Alien is there, but yeah, you call it Spock, right? Come on. <laughs> Look for Spock. But the, yeah, so you, you can put in multiple strategies and you think that things will get like really complicated, but yeah, not in, not in games. Because what happens in games, like when you increase the number of strategies, you're not increasing any dimensions over here. In the payoff matrix, you just increase the size. You have A and B, and now you add a C, okay? So it just increases in size. But what does increase in dimensions is where your dynamics is taking place. Because earlier we had just this, red and blue. But now we have to have, to have this third guy over here. So now we have these three strategies over here, which is uh, red, blue, or green. And you can, your system can be anything, all red or blue, all green, or anywhere in between. So now, now this becomes two-dimensional, and that's, that's pretty tricky. But then the cool thing is, because we are still studying two-player games, if you remember, the maximum number of internal equilibria was d minus 1. So even if you have a, such a high, higher dimensional system, from the number of internal equilibria is just one maximum, which you can get. So what you can ask, the question which you can ask in this thing is, okay, if I have a system which has, for example, so what I showed you right now was a uh, n strategy two-player game, but uh, you can also ask the question, okay, if it's any number of players, any number of strategies, what's the probability that I will get a certain number of equilibria? And, okay, one nice way is you can do this numerically, you can say that, okay, the probability of having no equilibria, one, two, three, four, or above, I mean, we don't know how many are there, or do we? Like, we can, we can calculate these number of equilibrias by, by just drawing random games and looking at the probability of having that those many equilibrias. And you see some nice patterns over here. For example, it's the number of one is reducing like by half all the time. And uh, the nice thing is you, you can not just uh, numerically, but you can also do this analytically. You can actually write down what's the probability that I will see a single internal equilibrium for a two-player game with any, any number of strategies. And you can show that it's 2 to the 1 minus n. Or the probability that you have an internal equilibrium which is stable. What's the probability of that? Because those are the things of interest. Is it stable or unstable and things like that. So you can also write, uh, write it down analytically, not just for two players, but for any number of players and two strategies, again. You can write down that the maximum number of 
like the, if you have a given equilibria then it is stable the probability is half but this we already know because this is the simpler case for two strategies it's just a one dimensional thing you have an equilibrium it's either stable or not it's just half and this actually i uh, this work i did it with a mathematician so basically, basically i'm 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 trained as a biologist i i i just kept physics all the time because i love physics but when I started interacting with, with mathematicians, I realized that, oh, that's something completely different. Actually, that's not as good as doing physics. So when I wrote this previous paper, and then he said, oh, we have a proof in there. You don't need to prove it like so strictly because it's obvious, it's trivial. And then this guy comes along, Han, and he says, oh, it's completely wrong. And I was like shocked. I was like, shit, did we make a mistake or something? He's like, yeah, but you don't have a proof. Like, sorry, <laughs> it's it's obvious. And he said, no, no, you have to write it down. So he shared like, oh, the maximum number of internal isolated equilibria for any number of player game for any strategy should be d minus one to the n minus one. Like, okay, are you happy now? You wrote down a proof for that. <laughs> Fine. But the cool thing is, then we can start making use of it and saying that if we do have a d player game with n strategies and the maximum number of internal equilibria which you can get in this such kind of a system. It's just d minus 1 to the n minus 1, which is also a very clean formula. Not just that, you can tell what's the maximum number of equilibria of the whole system. So what, what I mean by internal, let me show. If you have a system which is like this, the equilibria which you will find in the interior over here, what's the maximum number over here? And we are interested in here because these are the states of coexistence which you can possibly have. That's why it's of quite of interest but you can also add okay what's the equilibrium this phase this phase this phase add the vertices and everything and if you put all that together that's the maximum can you, can that you give a hint of the proof is it iterative is it iterative that you no 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 so actually it's um, the idea is just that because if if you have n number of strategies then you have n minus 1 uh, differential equations each one of them is of the power d minus 1 because there are d minus one strategies, uh, d minus one players there. Then, so you have n minus one equations with d minus one, and then of course you can prove prove that for such a such a set of ordinary differential equations, the maximum solutions could be this. But they could be. Some of them might be identical, which is why you. Can. And that's that's what we wanted to check if this is actually a bound which you can reach. So then we can we can actually show that, for example, if you put d is equal to four for a four-player game with three strategies, because three is what you can visualize on a two-dimensional simplex, you can have nine internal equilibria, and you can actually get all of them. And but it's we we are not able to prove or disprove the second number, the total number of equilibria that the one in your system. So if I add this equilibrium over here, this one over here, and this and this and these adding them together in the systems which we did look we cannot reach that bound so we don't know if it is there or not numerically or analytically it's hard to prove or disprove sorry speed means because these are these differential equations how fast do they move in time so these are relative so it's it's not a scale there is no scale so that's why i just put fast and slow um so okay, so I, what we dealt all the way until now was selection. You have the selection going for yeah. You could also get some stable limit cycles in there, right? In principle. Actually, uh, we also proved that getting this non-isolated equilibria 
in the interior, so line of equilibria or something. It is impossible for certain kinds of. No, this would be like a tractor, like a. What, what did you say? I just want to know if there. Oh, uh, uh, a limit. Yes, yes, definitely. Where, where sure. Change. Sure. Yeah. Sure. This is not included in your. No, that's not. We look at isolated fixed points. That's why. Continuous, I think it gets way harder. Um, so yeah, what 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 about the force of mutation? I mean, we, we completely ignore mutation right now. That's what you were talking about earlier. I mean, if a strategy goes, does it come back or things like that? And the cool thing is, you can do all this beautiful analytical stuff if you assume that there are no mutations, or in the best case, you say that oh, you approximate by your results by for low mutation rates, you can still get good enough approximations. But what, what exactly is the problem Why having mutations? I'll, let me tell you again by having an example. So if you don't have any mutations, this is what you have, for example, a space. Where you can, you can move anywhere over here, and then yeah, you can track the dynamics throughout. As soon as you have mutations, you can never really reach any endpoint. Because mutations will flip you back in. So as soon as you increase your mutation rates, your space which you can explore starts getting constricted. If you mutate all the time, you will be just at one third in this case. So what, what happens is this space in which you can move starts getting constricted. And what people have usually done is they have avoided all this rest of this mutation thing. And you just look at small none or small mutation limit and then, then do all the analytical stuff. So is another way of saying that, that the assumption has usually been that a behavior is a behavior, a strategy is a strategy, and it's not going to change? No, uh, the assumption has been like once a strategy goes extinct, it goes extinct. I see. So if you reach this point, you will never get a B or a C back. I see. But now if you assume that, okay, because this process is still going on, this moron process, T plus, T minus, T plus, T minus. So when it's making a T plus, maybe by mistake it makes a B. Yeah, yeah, so you could get back. Yeah. And then you are back in, in inside. So that's why you reduce the space all the time. Yeah, that's that's been studied very recently. That you you can make something completely different, which is not in the not in your game. So not in your. If a game represents like a a whole game represents one time step in like an like a whole ecology time yeah. step, then you can say mutation is on a smaller time scale, and then each like ecological time step is a different game. Exactly. And you're linking right. together like linear approximation. And what what you're saying is they've they've started studied this recently. So if you have a for example, a payoff matrix two by two, just two strategies. And then what you mean is if you have a new strategy, they actually add a mm -hmm. column mm -hmm. and a row mm -hmm. for the third strategy. Sure. If something goes extent, you delete that row and column. Right. And this has been studied recently. So. You can also think of that in this context here. If you, if you think your original game is just between A and B, yeah. and then C is the new mutation that can arise. Sure, yes, exactly. But you have to know that there are three strategies previously. But what if you don't know what kind of strategies could be there? I mean, this is definitely, if in, in our case right now, what I'm going for, we don't define the payoff, so it's fine. We can do the same analysis here. But usually games are restricted by these payoffs. So A interacting with B gets something B minus C over 2 and things like that. So in that case, it's difficult to invent a new strategy. But yeah, so we usually do small mutation rates and let, what, what can we do actually? So if you assume that mutation rates are very small, then we can use our previous results. Okay, the strength of how good they are reduces as you move away. 
but there is also some stuff that you can do when you assume that selection is small and then you can actually do it for any mutation rate so you going from one end of the axis let's go to the other and what you can look in such a case is the average abundance so the average frequency of a strategy in this mutation selection equilibrium so as I said you will always be in the interior you will never reach fixation as such so this concept of fixation doesn't make any sense if you have mutations anymore so what can we now look for which will tell us if a strategy is selected what we what we look for is what's the average abundance of that strategy in the population if it is greater than neutral then yeah let's see if the average abundance of a strategy if there are n number of strategies if all are the same then the average abundance would be just 1 over n but if it is being selected or if it is being favored or disfavored whatever it is that's going to be because of something is being added more onto it and all we need to know is if for, for a strategy to be favored by, and again it's the same argument, you look for neutrality. So if this is the case when it is neutral, then what will, what's the case when it is greater than neutral? And the case for that is that this something should be positive. And what does this something look, at, look like? And so the thing is, it, it actually, if you write it down in English, it's like this average change in the frequency of strategy k under weak selection but if you write it down in mathematics it's more concise but of course less readable uh, so it's what how how does the frequency of a strategy change on an average if you have mutations and selection both included on it and you add this part to the neutrality and see if actually adding this part this part is positive or not so that's that's what we are going to look for and the way it looks like is is a bit ugly but the thing is we know most of these things because if you do look at what we have over here we have a selection intensity fine we know that population size we know that these a's come from the payoff matrix we know that and what we don't know are only these two black um, terms which I've, I've highlighted and what what they mean are so this the analysis for this follows one more very large theory which has been dominating the scene for I don't know 80, 90, 40 years now it's uh, the coalescence theory which was by Kingman and all which which works in a way that you start off your population and they in the coalescence theory you usually assume that there is even no mutation no selection and things like that but but we add selection and mutation over here and then you ask that if your population has been evolving for a long time with mutations and selection you keep on it keeps on evolving and then I close my eyes at some time point I pick up two individuals what's the probability that both of them have the same strategy so just believe me you can calculate that it goes on something s2 and right now you can don't worry about that but you can calculate that probability that including mutation selection what's the probability that you will have um, both the individuals of the same strategy you can also do the same thing again I pick close my eyes pick up three individuals and say what's the probability that they all have the same strategy and you can still calculate that uh, once you know these you can it's just a combination of these two that you can calculate the rest of the probabilities that if I pick close my eyes pick individuals what's the probability that both of them are different or two are the same one is different or all three are different and things like that you can write down these probabilities and once you know them you can actually solve this part over here so we want to calculate this we can write down what that looks like after we solve that uh, after we solve this part 
And what it comes down to, if, if you look at what this thing looks like now, all these are again constants. And you have the mutation rate in here, again, selection intensity. And you, all you don't know is this term over here. So what, what we have done is we have packaged all the information that we have about the number of strategies and the payoff entries in these parameters that LK and HK, whatever they are. And all we need to see if this thing is greater than 0 now for this whole thing to be positive or basically greater than neutral. So all we need to know if this thing is greater than 0. And as I said, because these LKs and HKs consist only of the number of strategies and the payoff entries, again, all you have to do is just look at your, your payoff matrix and see if it satisfies this inequality. And then you, you know that even when you do have mutations, if, if, is the strategy going to be selected for? And in this sense, being selected for is having a larger abundance. What is mu? The mutation rate. Uh, and delta? Selection intensity, which is assumed to be small. That's the requirement of this coalescence process. So on the model, how do they enter? So selection, uh, mutation rate is just changing in reals with this rate? Basically. Yeah, but actually, that's, that's what I did not show. That's the one which goes in those S2, S3, and things like that. Because the probability that you will have two individuals of the same type, you have to go through the whole process that until this time, do they have mutated? Have they mutated back and forth? And all, all that thing goes in that process. No, no, I was just wondering about the model itself. Mm -hmm. The mu is just the change of from blue to red, basically. Blue to red, red, red to blue. And then the delta? Delta is the selection intensity. How different are those two strategies from each other? So in the beginning, you remember I had this FA and FB. And FA and F, FA can be equal to FB if this W is very small. So it's also related to the A's in this case. Yes, but those A's and all everything are put in these LK's and HK's. So it's, it's, it's a different way of just pack, packing stuff together and writing it down in this. So what we did, this, this was there for two player games, but now we can also do it for three player games. And what, what changes over here is everything else being the same. Over here, we, earlier we needed to pick two individuals. And here we needed to pick three, but now it becomes three and four. And you already see the pattern for four, it will be four and five and things like that. So this, this picking of individuals and this combinatorics which goes into calculating if they are going to be of the same type or not, that becomes horrible. But you can still, again, do that kind of stuff. And what you get is, again, one more condition, which now you have an additional term in the end. So you see that as you add the number of players, what matters is the higher orders of your mutation rates. So you need to take into account the higher orders of the mutation rates as the number of players increases to make sure if the strategy is greater than neutral or not. So this is just one thing. You can just go directly to this any number of players again. And you can write down that there will be d of the pickings here, d plus 1 individuals over here. And just see, calculate all the probabilities are the same, not, and things like that. And you can write down an inequality with d uh, terms in it and look if it is greater than 0. And this, this will tell if the number of stra uh, if the strategy is greater than, has an average abundance greater than neutrality. And you can, for this, this is clear. I mean, why do we do this? I mean, it would, it's nice to look for an example. So if, I, if you plot this average abundance for a certain game which was studied by Lindy Wall, it's about the division of labor. If you have 
two tasks and I can do a task I task one and you can do task two and then there is a freeloader who picks up arrows from me and bows from this guy and goes hunting on himself and he's the freeloader guy and of course as if mutation rates are very high as I said everyone exists at the same frequency one third but as you decrease mutation rate the freeloaders take over because then they are getting all the stuff from the other guys but if you have a three player game for the same setup the cool thing is because of this higher dependence, this second order, third order dependence on mutation rates, there can be a regime in the middle where actually even though you do have uh, fairly high enough mutations, the freeloaders are not taking over yet. So that's, that's just to illustrate the qualitative difference between the two setups of a two-player game and a three-player game. It's not just like adding uh, a third player and that's fine, that's just the same dynamics or something. So it does affect your dynamics in a way. That was just an example. Now going back to this this packing of how, how I put those LKs and HKs for Christoph. Like, so you have, uh, what, what we did have was that we had this inequality in which you have some variables over here where you put in all the game details in them. So you have this number of players, uh, the payoff entries and things like that goes in there and plus you have the process details which were on the outside for example if you look over here you had this thing which which had the game details in them and then you have the process details which is this what's the population size what's the mutation rate what's the selection intensity everything was outside but you can also write it in another way you can put the process details in one box and you can write the game details outside and the reason I'm devoting one whole slide to just this transformation is just that is because you actually move from these many number of variables to just a single one where you can put in all the information about your process details because your process is remaining the same. What's changing is your game details, how many number of players and things like that. So if you know your process, actually you can put all of that in one variable. And this reduction of variable, of course, is a very powerful uh, thing to have. So what you now when you now when you look back at this picture which we had earlier, for very small mutation rates, there was this result one result which we had we can compare the fixation probabilities of the two strategies. But if you have very small selection intensity, if you have any mutation rate, you can you can look at this average abundance. Now in this case, I'm just considering two strategies, so it's one over two. So if the fixation if the average abundance of a strategy is greater than half. But the thing is, because of this nice packaging which, which we have, we say that this sigma contains everything about all the information about this process. Everything, the population structure, the update rule, the mutation rates and everything that goes in the sigma. And the, this is the uh, result by Harsanyi and Zeltman, which we had earlier about risk dominance, that the fixation probability of a strategy is greater than that uh, than the other one if you just have this uh, A1 plus A0 greater than B1 plus B0. So the you can take all those details and, and sigma is a constant, like it's not a function or an operator? That's a function of population structure, mutation rate, update rule, your selection intensity, everything. It's one function, but it's a one thing and right. that goes on both sides. It's a single value though. So exactly, it's a single value. Okay. Because you can already see that because if, if you reduce all those things in there, sigma uh, falls down to one. If you don't have any mutation rate or anything, this just falls down to this, where you get this condition, as you can see from here. So that's that's the power of this repackaging of the 
variables. This you wouldn't have been able to see if it was in this bad form, LK, HK, and blah, blah. It just becomes too big. And I'm showing it for two-player games with two strategies, but the thing is you can actually do it for um, any player, sorry, any number of players and any strategies. It doesn't look that intuitive yet right now because it's, it's it has got these many number of players, but you can just to get a sense of it or feel it, if you, you can again think if you put the sigma equal to 1, you will recover this one because then it's just, just the sum of AKs and BKs. And that's, that's what you can do for any mutation rate as well now. So uh, going back to what, what are the implications? Why do we want to do this in the first place? Having all these multiplayer games and complexity, uh, does it really help? The thing is, what, what does it mean for, for having, having experiments like these then in the first place? Like you have, there are experiments on, on a petri dish, bacteria, these are actually from Benjamin Kerr's experiments where they had these rock, paper, scissor kind of cycles in E. coli. But, and they were analyzed with a two-player game. I mean, what, how do we assume that bacteria are playing some, any, any player game for that matter? And because we know that qualitatively it's a different picture than what you get when you assume two-player games then how, how good are the assumptions which we make? Or in social sciences, when we are looking at these climate games and things like that, in which it's not optional for us if we want to join or not in such a game. So there are at least more than 7 billion people who are playing this, but do we look for this, this complexity um, in such games or not? That's, that's a question. For that, the final statement, I would, I would leave it to Hamilton again who said that the theory of many-person games may seem to stand to that of two-person games in relation of seasickness to a headache. Because one is bad enough, why do you want to make it even worse? But the thing is, it also goes on to say that if we are a healthy society, then we should feel seasick when confronted with these endless internal instabilities, which the theory of many-person games has had to offer. So this I would like to stop over here. I mean, this, this is the group and in one of the better days in Plune, not right now, it's snowing. It's, the institute is right at the lake and swim and stuff like that. So I, I would stop with the theory here. I mean, there is, there is one more thing which I could go on for 10 more minutes if people are interested. It's, it's about this. So, okay, all right. So this, this idea was like, okay, you have this kind of multiplayer game theory, Do, can we actually use it somewhere? <laughs> or it's just a nice expansion of the theory, you come to know more about it, and yeah, but can we, so I was like, yeah, then we thought like, yeah, we could make use of it by going back again to the old texts and let's see what we have. So mutualism was actually described quite nicely by Aristotle himself when he gave, um, <coughs> Yeah, an example of the interactions between crocodile and trochilus, which people told me is not even there anymore, or things like that, or it's into something else. The bird is into, it's called something else now, something like that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it has a long history, I would say, in the field. And the cool question which everyone wants to answer is how do they evolve, or what keeps them from breaking down? And there are many theories which go into that direction, having these prisoners dilemma games, public goods games, which come up with a variety of solutions, saying that no, it's reciprocal altruism, it's by partner choice, it's byproduct benefit, pseudo reciprocity, and whatnot. Lots of things. 
and because there are a lot of people already working on this, I'm not going to be working on this. <laughs> I'll be working on this question is that how does the evolutionary process distribute the benefits of mutualism? So I'm asking, I'm not asking if mutualism, how it evolves and all, not. It's, it's there, fine, it's there. How are the benefits being split between the two species? If, it's, if it is producing a benefit, how are they being split? So one way to look at it is like, okay, now, now it's not, now first we have to think of these players as not as individuals. So for example, this, this is a species, this is a species. I'm, I as a species can be very generous when we are working together or can be very selfish, uh, these two species and the species two can do the same thing. And the thing is here we need two different matrices and that's because the benefit perceived by one species may not be the same way it's being perceived by the other species. Okay, we are working together, I'm giving you food and you're giving protection. I mean, do we value both, both of them the same way? I mean, it's, that's, that's a judgment call, I would say, for them. <laughs> so you need two different um, matrices for this. The thing, these arrows, what these arrows signify is that if everyone is, I am very generous, you are very generous, we have way too much stuff, I can get off with being a little bit selfish. But we both cannot get off with being selfish because then we are not producing anything and then we are both screwed. So that's what these arrows just signify, that you have to move away from these, from these two points basically, being completely selfish, both the species, or both the species being completely generous, you move away from them. What you ideally want to have as a species two is being selfish and forcing species one to be generous. So I can give in as little as possible and you put in most of your stuff and then we are over here. And that's very cool for me. And that's the other, for species one, that's the same thing, same argument. And that's what was studied in, for example, in 2003. Are those, and those black things arrows of direction? Yeah, they are arrows. They're not really nice because I picked them up from the paper. So the quality wasn't that good. I don't know, it's a PDF. The twist they, which, the, which Bergstrom and Lachman put actually on this kind of a formulation was that, okay, what if the species, both the species evolve at different rates? They, they, the uh, species one is evolving slower or maybe species two is evolving slower or whatever it is. And the cool thing is, all you need to look at over here is the size of the blues and the reds. So you look at uh, how much of this part is blue, how much of this part is red. And in here you see that, for example, if species two is evolving slower, most of the points in this, again, a simplex, go to the selfish, uh, to the equilibrium which, which is favor, uh, favored by species two. And the same thing happens over here. If species one is actually evolving slower, most of the points go over to the uh, equilibrium where it's, it's best for it. So what, what they came up with this is that they call it as the red king effect. Sorry, in, in the plot before, how, how do you uh, represent that a species is evolving slower? Oh, you just change the evolutionary rates in the... Sure, but uh, in, the, in the actual diagram, uh, is it because the errors are more spaced or is it because I don't think, the trajectories? No, I think you, you see that because this trajectory has become non the uh, separatrix becomes non-linear over here. Just pull the scale, right? Just pull the thing up. This way, this way. That's what you see. I don't think the mutation rates. I, I don't think you see that. Yeah, you don't see that over here. All that, all that. All the, so, so yeah. I would say 
number three is uh, reconstructing the diagram now, assuming that species two, species is, two is slower. slower. Yes. And the outcome is that outcome the, is this is that that area beneath the separatrix is larger for exactly. species right. two. Yeah. Okay. So what that effect has is this makes the separatrix nonlinear, but uh, yeah, I mean you don't see you don't see the slower mutation, uh, slower evolution here. Mm -hmm. You assume that it is slower, and then you look at the outcome. Yeah. And they they termed this as this red king effect, in which they said that the slower that a species evolves, the higher chance it has of reaching its favored equilibrium. And by I mean higher chance because it's very specific to your initial conditions. This study is again for infinitely large populations, which is fine. It's it's a looking for a principle, so it's okay. And it's but it's just that by just by looking at the simplex, if you have larger area, there is a larger probability of going there. So it doesn't mean you will always reach there, but that's just have a higher probability. And they termed it as this red king effect in contrast to the red queen, where you have to be faster to be better than your uh, co-player. So what, what's the game setup which they are thinking of over here, actually? So what, what they're thinking of, if you have species one, you have species two, you assume a two-player game. That means one comes from here, one comes from here, then they play the game. I assume, again, two different, I'm showing them separately because, I mean, of course, they come just once and then they play, but what each one perceives is a different game for each species. That's why I'm just showing it separately. So that's, that's what's assumed. But we can, we can, we don't know. I mean, you always see. This is a one-to-one -one interaction. You can also have many-to-many, one-to-many, many-to-one interactions, and that's that's where you want to put these multiplayer games in. So if you if you assume that species one is playing a three-player game, that means one individual, just like earlier, I am this blue guy playing with two other guys, and over here they always come from the other species. So we assume. We assume only we are looking only for interspecies interactions. Of course, if you want to put in intraspecific interactions, it becomes more complex. That can be done. But just to show over here. Um, and also, species two is playing a three-player game. That means one guy comes from here and plays with two of the species one. Or you can have an asymmetry in this. Like species one plays a two-player game, but species two plays a three-player game. That means. From here, it's one and plays with only one opponent of of the species two. But if it's one to many interactions, or yes, if it's one to many interactions, then this one guy comes, and then there are two players from over here. So you can have a three-player game for species two. All these kind of asymmetries. And uh, the thing is, we we looked up. I mean, the, are we just making the stuff up or what? But uh, there have been lots of studies actually in the. Um, Earlier 70s and 80s, 80s, late 80s, I think, even about um, looking at how 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 these different number of individuals. This is just an example from ants and lysinid uh, larvae. These are these butterfly larvae which are tended to by the ants. They keep them clean. They keep them safe. They protect them, and the larvae produce um, these honeydew, these droplets from their body, which serve as uh, f uh, food for the ants. And they can manipulate their sizes in such a way that if you look at the total number of ants which are tending to a larva, you can look at many different things. But what we focus on is the number of these droplets which are produced by this larvae as food as a function of the number of ants which it is being tended by. And I'm not saying what kind of a uh, mapping there is between these two. I'm just saying that there is a mapping. 
so there is some dependence on this number of individuals which you which which they are interacting with so going for that now what we need to do in this in this case is that instead of a two player game now what we have is a three player game so if i uh, assume that i am this one guy from species 1 either one i don't care right now and i'm interacting with two more individuals from this other species what kind of outcome will i be looking for so first of all for a two player game again d equal to 2 we can recover the results which were there previously for if the growth rates are the same rx ry are the growth rates of species 1 and species 2 then it's equally split the simplex is equally split whatever it is and if species 1 is evolving slower than species 2 so in this what you want to look for is species 1 is given by blue just look at the size of the blue one if species 1 is slower then actually most of the stuff is blue so it, most of the points are going to an again an equilibrium which is favored is favorable for this species one. Growth rate. Growth rate. This No, it's growth rate all the time. It's the rate at which it, the species one evolves slower, species one evolves faster. The rate at which they But you're saying evolves it means that the that the, the, the actual the dynamics is faster. But but they're changing the strategy. Yes. As, as it, so, yeah. so there's mutation then? No, no, no mutation. It's just that... I've been confused because I think you've been using mutation, growth, and something else interchangeably. So what... No, what is, what is maybe that's my mistake then. No, what? So the number of individuals is changing? Or the no, no. What was changing the rate at which the rate at which they are evolving, that's it. Evolving, so the, what does that mean? How the dynamics proceeds, how, how the dynamics, is it faster? Which process is faster? For example, if you think of it as just, just if you think of it as in this finite process, finite individual process, think of it as this moron, moron process. So the rate at which the moron process is happening in this species is different than the rate at which. So by the time ten generations go in here, one goes here. So the rate at which the number of individuals is changing. Are the turnover? Not yes. The rate at which their strategy. No, no, not the rate at which their strategy. No. no. The total number of individuals fixed. That is fixed, but the rate, the turnover, is faster in one species than in the other. Yeah, if you're thinking, if you want to think in finite populations, yes, but. So it's like mutation rate more. No, mutation would be between strategies. That's not mutation rate, no. Mutation would be between strategies. So you have one species and then you go from S1 to G1, for example? Because there are two strategies. You can be generous, you can be selfish. Yeah, but there is no mutation between being generous and selfish. So in the previous example, yeah. the red and blue graphs from that other paper, yeah. what you were saying that they were changing there is not the mutation rate. No, it's not. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. It is the change in the rate of numbers of that individual in the population. Right. Okay. Yeah. How fast it's changing in one as compared to the other. Okay. Yeah. And here both are the same. The rate at which they are changing is the same. And here uh, in species two, it's much faster than in species one. And if you do have that, then that means like for the slower species, you get most of it is blue. But if you do have a, instead of a two-player game, for example, if you arbitrarily choose like 20-player game or something, then you actually kind of reverse the situation. I mean, for the same kind of asymmetry in growth rates, what you are having is most of the simplex is now red instead of blue. So you have reversed the situation. And so you don't, still don't, so what, what does it mean to be at one point in this plane? You have these two species, and then they have the difference. Those are the frequencies. More selfish or frequencies. So, for example, if you, I don't know, if you are here, 
in the right in the middle, 50-50 over here. That means 50% of species one are selfish, okay, yeah. and this, and over here, it's 50% of yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what what this multiplayer theory brings to the table is having first of all, you can have this asymmetry in the number of players. So it doesn't have to be like oh, it's always a one-to-one -one interaction or I don't know two-to-two -two interaction many-to-many -many, as the many remaining the same <laughs> interaction. You can have different number of players interacting with different number of players from the other species. Or you can have, uh, and just an example for this is like if you have species one playing a two-player game and both, then we have this previous result which we had for this asymmetric mutation rate. But now if the species two decides that, okay, species one is evolving slower, but what I can do is have a more number of players in. So you can put in the interplay between asymmetric, uh, asymmetric growth rates and asymmetric number of players. So you move your, so the species one can still get a larger red area by having a larger number of players, even though it's evolving faster. So you can have this interplay between these asymmetric uh, growth rates and asymmetric number of players. What you can also have is an asymmetry in thresholds. <coughs> That's because, as I said earlier, now we have this kind of a uh, a larger matrix or so. So what happens in the middle? I mean, what's, what are the signs of the payoffs over here? I mean, for maybe for one species it could be this is still going up and this is going down, but for the other it, it might be something else. So we, we don't know about this because all that's required is that you have these two things in the end, but it doesn't, the setup doesn't tell you anything what happens in the between. So for example, if, if I'm, a, I'm this la caterpillar larvae, what, whatever, thingy, and maybe I say I need at least four ants to tend me, otherwise forget it. So if I have a threshold, but if the ants say, like, come on, I, there are not even five of you, we are not going to do that. So if that's a different threshold, which, so there are these kind of things which you again, you can put in combination with this asymmetry in evolutionary rates and study the whole system. But after going through this, what we thought, like, yeah, it's a good, nice hypothesis building process, which you say that for simplicity, you use pairwise interactions in game theoretical arguments, and that's fine, that's completely fine. For modeling collective phenomena, however, you can use, make use of multiplayer game theory. But instead of using pairwise interactions on an arbitrary number of individuals, I mean, I, in here we just, I, I just chose like 20 for, as an example. but. We do have a lot of literature on, on group sizes, group size of animals. So what we can use is maybe some function of, of this group size. Maybe I don't know the mean, the, the variance, I have no clue. But maybe because we do have a lot of literature, we can make use of this, actually. And group size is definitely known to be, of at least in mutualisms, but many other processes as well. It is known to be of importance. So. What, what, if, what if we have this group size itself to be an evolving strategy? Because as you saw earlier, if I have a deficit because of my growth rate, I can offset it by having a different number of players. Then maybe if, if this thing is an evolving strategy, I mean, that could be nice, something nice to test. And actually, back again to the work of Naomi Pierce and all, they had actually looked for this. What's the growth rate in butterflies? as compared to the how many ants are there, the density of the ants, which is there. And they actually say that you need a certain threshold of 
population density of these ants, if they are less than that, actually the butterfly's uh, growth rate is lower or higher, higher and things like that. It plateaus off because then there is only a certain number which they can sustain. The butterflies can be tented by. So, yeah. But this work has been going on, and of course, recently also there has been like work on on how this group size itself can be adjusted. Okay, this is not an example for for mutualism, but at least it's in a species where you have this cooperative breeding, so it's for uh, the cichlid fishes. But where where you need certain number of individuals to come together, and then they breed together, take care of the young. But what should be the optimal group size for this to take place? And they, they show that actually the cichlids can actually manipulate the size. If there are way too many, they kick people, they kick some of them off. And if there are way too less, they start inviting them in. And yeah, maybe there are some good stuff that uh, supports this kind of an hypothesis then. So that's, that's kind of all. And uh, yeah, again, I would like thank you all for sticking around until the end. These are just these nonlinear solutions which you can get for uh, for those different kinds of many-player games with many strategies, for example. Uh, I have a question. Have you tried to apply this to viral evolution? So, you know, flu, for example, reduces its impact to the immune response mm -hmm. over time, and as a result, both virus and the host are benefited. Uh, so viral tires go up, but the immune system kind of tolerates this. Oh, yeah. And no, I haven't. I haven't. I, what I feel, what I feel a bit weird about applying this theory to such systems in which there are already infinitely large population sizes is that you don't. Need, infinitely large. Right? No, but like it's. I mean, yeah. you usually count them in frequencies rather than individuals. Then, right? Yeah. So what was wrong with doing that? No, it's it's not wrong. It's the applying this theory to that, because then what I, I would be interested in is this number of interactors in in a certain interaction, and that's already so huge that you can assume. Infinitely what I was saying was that uh, you could give an example of the evolution of your theory from one s situation where you have these lines. Ah, okay. Into okay. Okay. A situation where one okay. or the other takes over. Right. 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 And you you come with a strategy which is very different. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the immune response. All right. Use, yes. 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 Which is effectively as if you are inoculating the time it takes for me to get rid of the virus, mm -hmm. and both of us benefit. Basically, right, the virus right. goes okay. down, yeah. but it lives, and I live as well. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But yeah I haven't thought of that. Evidence, so right. it might be interesting. Maybe we can talk. Right. About sure. Sure.